everybody. This is Cynthia Barnes back with another episode of Unstoppable with Cynthia Barnes, where I interview the nation's and possibly the world's greatest women in sales who have done remarkable things and whom I think are just unstoppable. And today I have the honor, the honor and the privilege of speaking with Deb Calvert. How are you, Deb? I'm good, Cynthia. I've been looking forward to this so much. I can't think of anybody else who's better entitled to have the title Unstoppable on their podcast. You, you've always amazed me. So I'm really excited about this. Oh, you are too kind. You are too kind. So tell us a little bit about or a lot about who you are, what you do and who you serve. Well, I'm Deb Calvert. My company is called People First Productivity Solutions, and we've been around for about 15 years. We work in three spaces. That happens to be sales productivity, leadership development, and team effectiveness. And what I'm all about really is helping people build organizational strength by putting people first. Sellers, putting their buyers first. Leaders, putting the people that they uh, need to be inclusive of first teams, putting other team members first, because, you know, we can all get so much more done when we're other oriented and we're appreciative of what people have to to offer into any conversation. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I notice about women is that we have that mindset. Has that been your experience too? You know, I've met men and women with that mindset. I, I just say this as a caution because sometimes the a blanket statement will trip you up. Um, it will yes. me. Yes. Um, you know, I have been, I really have been noticing, and I want to give credit where it's due, men stepping up to, to try to be more uh, thoughtful about how others are experiencing situations. And I've had a few delightful conversations over the past two or three months where I was surprised, nicely surprised by a, a man who asked me, hey, is this working for you? Is there anything else you want me to know? And just just very open questions that I can't recall in the past having posed to me in those ways. So in general, the answer is yes. I, I do think sometimes women more naturally are conditioned and inclined to think about the whole or the others. And I don't want to say anything that's exclusive, though, of the guys, because I've, I've had some great examples. Yes, yes. I think that we can speak to the strengths of women without being exclusionary. So yes, I'm glad you said that. So another one of the strengths that I see a lot of women in sales have is empathy. What part do you feel that empathy plays in the sales process, if at all? I think it's hugely important in this day and age. We are in the age of experience. Customers want more than service. They want more than value that comes from price. They want someone who gets them. They want to know that the seller they're talking to can feel what, what they're feeling and, and can understand and put themselves into uh, the, the customer's shoes. You know, we, we did research for um, the book called Stop Selling and Start Leading, and I was so struck by a comment in that research with buyers. It came through over and over again, and the, the statement was, the seller has my best interest at heart. And that caught me, my attention because I'm more accustomed to hearing has my best interest in mind or, or it is something that sounds more mm, you know, logical, right? But, but there are all these signals. So what part does empathy play? I think it plays a hugely important part in the report at the beginning, in being the one who provides the experience that differentiates you and the one who 
of course, the customer wants to call back and continue to do business with over and over again because they feel that you feel them. Yes, absolutely. And it's an emotional type of response. So in your line of work, I'm sure that you have some tactics and some tips and some best practices that you try to encourage others to follow to get people to feel that you are operating in their best interest. So how is it that our listeners can change the way they operate to make sure that that feeling comes across? I I think it boils down to two very critical skills. The first of those, as trite as this will sound at first, I can't underscore its true importance enough, and that is really good listening. I mean, empathetic listening, right? You Active listening, you've heard that phrase, that's listening with your brain, processing, comprehending. Empathetic listening is listening with your heart. I'm listening for the tone. I'm listening for the unspoken meaning that comes from the emotion, the... Uh, pause, the hesitance, the excitement in their voice, right? There are certain cues that we give each other. And if you listen for feeling as well as content, you'll get more quickly to that level of empathetic listening. And the second very critical skill, I think, is asking purposeful, well-phrased quality questions, not the ones that are on your list of qualifying questions, not the ones that every other seller is asking, but the ones that dignify people, the ones that yield the floor to them so that they can think and give you a more uh, complete response. When we think about needs assessment, that's where questions most often get associated. If I were to try to simplify this, I would say it's a shift from a diagnostic needs assessment to a dialogic one where it's going to be much more two-way and where there's going to be true exchange of emotion as well as information. Those are excellent, excellent points. How does an SDR or BDR who has, who has given a list of qualifying questions and diagnostic questions, how do they shift in their questioning to make sure that it's a dialogue type of question rather than a diagnostic type of question? Yeah. And this is especially hard. I'm glad you called it out. It is especially hard for SDRs and BDRs because they are so often tasked with a very long list and a very short amount of time. And when they get through, boy, they just, you know, they, they want to, they need to process the information and do the qualifying quickly. However, if what they really want is the appointment, then they have to do two things. They have to do the qualifying and they have to do the experience giving so that the buyer wants to take that next step. So let me start with companies. What should companies do or what should managers of SDRs and BDRs do? They should emphasize the importance of what we're talking about. We're not tossing out the qualifying questions, but we're going to weave something around them. It's going to be a little bit more of this experience. Will it take a bit longer? Maybe, but is that okay? If, if you have a higher close rate of, of getting a call and moving things through the process, is that okay? Sure, everybody would say yes. And will you have a much better chance of an ultimate close because this company, even from the get-go, has positioned itself a certain way and and differentiated itself from competitors? So there's value here. And it actually, when SDRs and BDRs do this, when they have permission and it's okay and they do this and they get the results, they feel so much better about the work they're doing. It's more fulfilling. And then they become more successful because they have more confidence about what they're doing too. So this is a feels like a 
a big monumental shift? It's not. It's one that that has its own momentum that builds in a positive way when you make it, though. So let's say that we've got an SDR or a BDR listening right now, which we probably do. What would you say to them? What words would you give them so that they can go back to their manager and say, hey, I heard this awesome tip from Deb today. How can we implement this or give them something like the soundbite to go back and, and help make that shift? Because sometimes we have to manage up. Yeah, I think it's a fair question. I've asked it myself in my career. It's a fair question to ask. If I had fewer calls, but I got more appointments, would that be okay if my close rate on, on appointments was uh, was higher? Amazing. It's, it's all in tone, right? You're not going in to challenge your boss. But hey, I'd like to try something. Could I have your permission to try this and, and you know just do sort of an A-B test? Because the proof is always in the, the results. Yes. And I don't know of any sales manager worth their salt that, that would turn that down. Yes. Agreed. Yes. Yes. So you've been in um, business and in sales for how many years? Oh, my goodness. You want me to age myself? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this. I have never not been in sales. And I was, as a five-year-old, pulling a little red wagon full of produce from our garden door to door, knocking on doors and selling carrots and celery and lettuce and whatever, you know, whatever it was the season for. So literally, I've always been in sales. After the red wagon came campfire candy sales, and I was always the top performer because I wanted I wanted the camper ships to Camp Shawnee. That's my, my happy place on this planet. And um, so I always wanted to go, if you sold enough candy, 400 boxes, you got to go to camp. I always wanted to go at least two weeks and get my camper ships. So, um, you know, I won all the awards going back to the time when I was in a first grader. So that that's a long time. It's a lot of decades. Sales is in your blood. <laughs> it is. My mom was one of the first U.S. women Marines, and she was one of the first recruiters for the U.S. women Marines. And recruiting is, of course, selling. Yes. And so my mom, she taught me things as I was selling campfire candy and loading up my red wagon. She taught me about, we didn't call it by the word selling, but she was teaching me how to ask questions and how to customize. So I'd go and I'd sell candy and I wouldn't say, hello, I'm selling campfire candy. And I have these three kinds, the mint patties, the peanut clusters and the assorted chocolates. I can't believe I remember this. And, but I didn't say that if it was coming up on Thanksgiving, cause our candy sale period was in the fall. She taught me to go, knock on strangers doors and say, Hello, what are your plans for entertaining your guests for Thanksgiving? Would you like to give them a gift when they come to your house? And, you know, it was always very timely. And I was, uh, you know, chubby-cheeked five-year-old, six-year-old standing on the porch. So I'm sure I was irresistible too. Uh, but it was an entirely different approach from what everybody else was taking. Where do you think she learned those skills? Oh, I, I'm sure that she learned them in the Marines as a recruiter because it was all about, she told me, it was all about doing something that not very many people were doing at the time, breaking ground, coming into the Marines as a woman. And she would ask people things like, what are your dreams? And wouldn't you like to travel the world? And, you know, how would it feel for you to be independent? And, and so she was talking about things that appealed to people, not about the things that, you know, they could get somewhere else, a certain paycheck, a certain stability of security, right? She personalized it first. It sounds like she put people first. Yeah. 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 I never put those two pieces together. You just made me get a little teary-eyed there. <laughs> she did. Yes. It sounds like to me that she, she was hugely influential in your personal and professional life. And 
your what you do now is a manifestation of all that goodness that she poured into you. That is a fair statement. Yeah. I love it. I love it. What was your first W-2 sales job? Mm. So um, my my first paying sales job was a terrible experience. I, boiler room, for sure. I was uh, in college, and I'd been working in the dorm cafeteria and doing some other jobs that didn't pay all that well and had terrible hours and you know weren't much fun, but that's how I was paying to go to school. And I heard that you could make a lot more money in a sales job where you would go in and be on the phones and uh, that the bosses were really hard on you, but you made all this money, you wouldn't care. Okay, so I thought I'd try that out. But it literally was a boiler room with a sales script, selling timeshares. It didn't feel ethical. I didn't want to read a script. It didn't make sense to me, you know, coming out of my, my candy selling background and all my experience. And so I just sort of refused to do it. And I was more successful than a lot of people, but I got a daily beat down for the three whole weeks that I was there um, about not reading the script, not following the script. And threats. And, you know, at that time, it was also, I think there were two of us who were females in that particular environment. It was, it was pretty brutal, Cynthia. But fortunately, I didn't think, I just didn't have the presence of mind to think, oh, well, that's what sales is like. I'm never doing that again. I just, you know, thought it was the environment and the people. Okay. What was the biggest lesson you learned from your three weeks there? That because I had been successful doing what I knew was right, that you have to be authentic, that you should really think about people's needs and not just your boss being the only people, and that there are ethical things and there are unethical things. And ultimately, you personally are in charge of of your own ethics. So if someone is in a situation now where they don't quite agree with what's going on, whether it's the scripting, whether it's the treatment, but yet they need the paycheck. It's easy for us to say, you know, go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. But when your livelihood is dependent upon that job and you think you don't have as many options as you probably do, what would you say to someone in that situation? I would literally say, call me. Call Cynthia. Call any of the the people who are out there who say things like what Cynthia always says, go where you're celebrated, not tolerated. I love that. And let's talk about that because maybe the the choices are more than you think they are. Now, I'm not saying this is 100%, right? Some people truly are boxed into something. We'll talk about that separately. But, but I think there's a very vast percentage of people who aren't as boxed in as they think. So let, let's talk. Let's see if you can find some some options and maybe it's a different place. Maybe it's raising a concern. You'll decide for yourself. Are you someone who wants to advocate and improve? Or are you someone who needs to, to be removed from, from that situation? Not everything is fixable. Now, let's just talk about what I think is a much a very small percentage of people who truly have no alternatives and they're in a terrible situation and they have to be. Right now, let's call this temporary. Right now, you, you, you can't make a move. I think in that case, you need to find every possible way to protect your own integrity. So they say, go tell these lies to people. Do you really have to tell those lies to people, right? This is me going off script from the timeshare situation. Do you you really need to do that piece of it to still make money? There's got to be something here where you can feel whole, even in a situation that's that's trying to make you feel less than whole. I agree. And when I've spoken to women that think they're stuck, 
through brainstorming and thinking outside the box and thinking creatively and abundantly, we find ways to maintain that self-dignity, self-respect, and peace of mind. Because that's what it all boils down to. If you spend a third of your life going to a job that you hate every single day, you deserve better than that. Yeah. Whether it's people, whether it's a job, you know, whatever you're doing in your life, is it going to bring you down or are you going to bring it up? And these are choices every single day when you settle for something or limit yourself in that way. It's it's taking you down. You'll Don't let that happen. It doesn't have to be that way. Not not long term. Not at all. So what are you currently working on? A few things. My book, Discover Questions, Get You Connected, that was a book written about questions based on research with buyers, and it was for salespeople specifically. But it has a lot of other applications. And so for the past couple of years, I've been more informally researching the application with coaches, with people who do coaching, not just sales coaching, but any type of coaching. And so I've got... uh, the draft and I've got the plan and I've got the, you know, bits and pieces. I'm pulling that together as a book, but I'm going to do some more formalized research because I just, I I prefer to put research into my books. So that is on the near horizon. I am working to completely revamp and update our most popular training course, which is a management training program called Workplace Conversations. It's also available in Spanish. And so we've got the translation happening and that's the last step before we launched the updated, pretty significantly modified course. It's It was 10 years since we did it the first time around, so it was very much due for an update. So I'm excited about launching that probably by the end of summer. And after that, Cynthia, there's not a third thing because I have been so incredibly busy, just busy with clients. That is amazing, especially in these topsy-turvy times. I'm happy to hear that you are busy because busy, it most likely means productive and profitable. Yeah, it's been, we, we were fortunate. We had optimized search terms like webinars and virtual learning before COVID ever came. So my phone is started ringing since we're available in Google search for those types of terms. So, awesome. but, but I'm also getting back on the road. So excited about that. Yes. Yes. Me too. Me yeah. too. What was the number one thing that you learned or are learning that surprises you in your research for your book? For the new one with coaches, um, oh, pleasantly surprised. Coaches ask very, very good questions. So the the samples that I have, that's going to be part of the challenge with this book is that I have so many really great questions from coaches. And it really makes me think, I'll probably do blogs on this at some point, cross applying this back to sales, we still have room to improve the questions that we ask. And coaches, the reason that that's relevant is because ultimately, if we want to create an experience for buyers, we really ought to be coaches to our buyers. Sellers should be coaches. Sellers should think like coaches. And there's a wonderful little coaching model and coaching questions that go hand in hand with it that, that sellers could and I believe should be using. So it's a that's a future future something. (laughs) (laughs) Something, something. So how can sales managers use the tactics that you've discovered to be better coaches for their teams? Well, first to know what coaching really is. And I think this term gets misunderstood and misused so often that then people give up on coaching. Oh, coaching is, it's not that different. It, It doesn't really do anything. 
but real coaching, true coaching makes a, a very big difference. So let's see, a quick answer. Coaching and mentoring are not the same thing. So if you're a sales manager and you are mentoring, that means telling what you know, showing what you know, jumping in to save the sales call, doing more of the talking to teach. That's a mentor. And that's fine. Don't give that up. But that's not coaching. So there's still a gap, something else you could be doing. Coaching is about promoting self-discovery. It's about holding up a mirror and reflecting something back to someone. It's about facilitating so that they gain that self-awareness, that self-discovery, where they get to to make their own goals and set their own path and, and become uh, more self-sufficient. So a mentor and a coach in a sales manager, when you have it all going on, those are now a, a that's a full tool belt. You, you've got lots of ways to help people. Would you agree or challenge the statement that you should never have a mentor who is in your direct line of hire? I would agree. And that's unfortunate because there are so many great people who you report to or who are up the chain that you want to learn from. But if you have healthy relationships, you're going to learn from them anyway. And so my disagreement comes with being careful not to box yourself in. If you go outside of your own direct line of the chain, you're going to find mentors who have different perspectives, different ideas. They don't see you through the lens of a performance review. They can give you other ideas that you might not get elsewhere. And you're not going to miss anything if you're doing this right. You're going to always be learning from from your manager and the folks above your manager anyway. I, I agree. Speaking of those that we learn from, who has been or who are some of the women that you have learned the most from, good or bad? Let me talk about the good first. I've been very fortunate. My first full-time job in selling, my first W-2 sales job that uh, was, was a great experience, I had a manager her name was Vanessa, and she was a teacher. I mean, she just and she just kind of took a shine to me. I think too. She, you know, she saw in me that that I, there was potential, and things were not good for me at the time. So she was also, you know, took me under her wing a little bit. But Vanessa defended me in a couple of ways. I didn't know all of this until till after, but I learned after. So. I worked in the classified department. This is back when newspapers were a really big thing and you know, ad, people were calling ads in all day. And when the fax machine was born, that thing would just roll ads in all, all day long. So we got commissioned by the number of classified lines, like literally the lines, and that's how we got measured. And I was very new to the job, but I was producing a lot of lines and pretty soon became the, you know, the person on the leaderboard all the time. So a few other folks in the department, the ones who had previously always held those records, they went to Vanessa and they said, I must be cheating. I must be doing something wrong. They need to take a closer look. And Vanessa told them, she said, hmm, I see that y'all are here at my desk and I see that she's over there on the phone taking ads. Maybe that's what's going on. <laughs> so there was that. And then I moved from that job into an outside sales position in a different part of the newspaper, retail sales. And Vanessa took me in and she said, I, I just want to say one thing to you. You're making this big move and, and things are different. Since you're not going to be in, in the phone room, you're going to be out there in the field uh, and you're going to get lots of you know perks and you're making more money. She said, but I want you to remember one thing. Don't ever change. Don't ever change. And she like, you know, she impressed this on me. She just was so adamant about it. And 
she's come to me to my mind so many times over the years, don't ever change. I've had more and more opportunities and I went to a corporate role later and I just always kept that in my mind. And I stay in touch with Vanessa even now. And she's, you know, a wonderful human. Anyways, she's one example, but I've had many wonderful female role models and, and bosses and people that I've learned from. What's consistent between all of them I'll throw my mom into the mix here. Yes. What's consistent between all of them is that they didn't indulge me, right? They they pushed me. They um, held me accountable and they would tell me or ask me, you know, is that the best you've got? And mm. uh, in, in various ways. And they would really impress upon me that there's, there's always something more out there. What else? What else? What next? And I, I felt so liberated so many times by the, the managers that I had through the years. I can tell that you hold them in high regard. I don't think I would be who I am if it weren't for some of those people. I, I, when I say I was very fortunate, very blessed that they were in my life, I, I mean that very sincerely. What would you say if you were, if I were to call them and ask them about the person, the woman that you've become, what do you think they would say? I think they would be proud of me if they feel a little bit parental. And I think some of them do. I think they'd all say we've become friends. Another boss, Candy, we, we, which we've traveled together now, long since she was my boss. But, um, you know, we had a mutual respect that formed through the years and a friendship that developed. And um, I think they feel a sense of, of pride and still feel very, very supportive of anything that, that I would want to do. Relationships are so important. Agreed. So important. I heard something this weekend at a conference. The gentleman said that we should not be focusing on ROI. We should be focusing on ROR. So not return on investment, but return on relationships. What are your thoughts about that statement? I like it. I'm probably going to steal it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what I like about it, so my business is people first, productivity solutions. Right. How do you get profit? How do you get process or products or anything else that you want? You, you get it through people. And a return on a relationship ultimately leads to a return on an investment. So this is a relationship is an investment of time. A relationship is more than how much money do you have to spend right now? A relationship is also a referral. It's a opportunity. It's a, a learning and growth experience. Uh, a relationship is much, much bigger than any one sale or uh, investment. So I, I like it. Good. I do too. I heard it and it gave me pause. If you had a choice between having money, power, influence, or relationships, which would you choose? Relationships, period. Right. What am I going to be thinking about on my deathbed? What am I going to be uh, counting on in my twilight years? What am I going to be thinking about that sustains me when I am feeling a little blue? It, it, it's the relationships. It's people. Agreed. So as we talk about people first, what's next for you after the books and after the courses? What What's next? I, you know, day to day, I live for the opportunities to make a difference. And it's hokey and it's trite and I don't care. I, I, I thrive on somebody saying, hey, I heard you on the Unstoppable podcast with Cynthia Barnes and you made me think about something. Thank you. Right. That, that to me... That'll make my week when I hear something like that. And so whether it's one of my customers and somebody that I've trained, whether it's someone who works with me, whether it's 
a random person who read my book or heard me somewhere. That is what it's all about. Relationships are so important. And as we aspire to reach up, we've always got to reach back, always got to reach back. So I love that you said it's about influencing others because it, they're, they're intermingled. For someone who's not good at relationships, what type of advice would you give them? Well, first, be sure that that's true. A lot of people feel that way, right? I, I was not the most popular kid in high school. That doesn't mean I'm bad at relationships. But but we have sort of these these very broad umbrella terms about what we think that means. I would say, take a look at what how you're defining relationships. I define them as opportunities to help people. And I'm benefiting from that in multiple ways. It feels good when I help people. But but how are you defining relationships? What does that mean to you? You don't have to be loved by the masses to be good at relationships. So if that's true, and if you if you really are having trouble connecting, if it's very awkward or difficult for you to talk to people, then my next step, if, if that's true, is to work on soft skills. I do a lot of coaching work and a lot of work with people around soft skills. They are acquirable. This is not reserved for some select few who happen to be born with uh, charm and some sort of personality type. Soft skills are just like any other skills. You you develop them. You learn how to ask questions that show your interest. You learn how to listen well and how to empathize with people. You you learn how to make those those connections that are meaningful. And I'm talking about, Cynthia, even for people who have sort of maybe even spectrum um, issues. These are skills that can be learned and they're skills that can benefit all parties involved. They're not out of reach for anyone who wants them. I agree. And I think having an awareness around whether or not it's true, if it is true that you are not as good at relationships as you'd like to be, then work on them. There are plenty of tools and resources and people to tap into where you can. So no excuses. Yeah. And it's not measured by quantity, but by quality. Yes. I, I'm i glad you put that in there. What is your biggest achievement to date? My family. <laughs> uh, we are empty nesters now. And my husband and I, we've been married for 30, going on 36 years. <gasps> and um, yeah, I, I just told you you're going to date me in this, <laughs> in no, this interview. I, because nobody's married that long. Congratulations. Yeah, and we've I was home for a solid year before I traveled and we still like each other. And so, you know, we're successful I think in that way speaking of relationships. Um business is is great. My business 15 years. I'm very very proud of what I've done. I'm proud of my books, but my greatest accomplishment it, it's about the family that I have. Children? 3 of them, all adults. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing their things. They're, their own, they're all very independent, very much their own people, making their own life choices and strong enough to, to be able to do that. So, We all go through hard times and the, the past year and a half has been no exception. As you think about the lessons and the love that you've poured into your children, what do you hope that they remember most when times get tough? We always told our kids growing up, that you should never close doors. Some of your choices in life make doors slam shut behind you. Maybe you want that door to slam shut behind you. Then you close the door, right? But don't accidentally close doors. Don't limit your choices and your options by being 
singularly focused or doing things that will alienate people or isolate you. Um, don't don't make assumptions. Be careful about things like unconscious bias that y- you're not only building doors, but walls, right? B- between you and other people, y- you've got to be more deliberate and thoughtful because when you have every possible door open, life's more fun. You have more choices. You can pivot and make changes when, when you need to, because we all need to sometime. So I'd, I'd like them to keep that one in mind. I'm sure they will, because you live by example. As you look back over your life and you think about those whom you love, who love you, who respect you, who hold you in high regard, your tribe, your fan club, what is it that you hope they say about you? Oh boy, these are some tough questions you're asking me. I hope that they will remember the people first aspect, but my business name, People First Productivity Solutions, the word productivity was so important to me that I didn't want to give it up. I know that's a very big, long business name, but I struggled between the two. So I hope that they'll remember me as someone who got stuff done, because that's always been a value that I've had. My name, Deborah, in Hebrew, actually means the bee. And I didn't know that until much later in life, but I think it suits me. And I do. I like to be busy. I don't like busy work. I like to be productive. I like the stuff I do to make things happen and to get things done. And I hope to someday be able to have people say, yep, she got stuff done. Important things that mattered, right? Things Things that mattered. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. What is the number one attribute that you think a woman in sales needs to possess or perfect in her career? We got to be tough. We got to sometimes be tough, not losing the people and the empathy, and the the softness, and whatever other things that you might bring to the table. But tough because people who succeed in sales generally are tough enough to be resilient, to bounce back, because you'll hear a lot of no's. Tough enough when someone says you can't to say, oh, really? Watch me. Tough enough to push through when there is some creep and there are plenty of them out there. It could be a customer. It could be a coworker, right? Somebody who's, who's going to try to make you feel less than. Be tough, right? They, they don't decide. You decide who you are, what you deserve, what you can have. Be tough. Do you think toughness can be taught? I think it can be modeled, but I think it has to be embraced. I think we all have it. I think that there, and and I'm a total marshmallow. I I mentioned my boss, Candy. Candy taught me something because I was such a crier when I was first in the, in the workplace. I'm still a crier, but now I know something. And, you know, but if, if somebody would give me constructive feedback, I'd, I'd get a little weepy. And she taught me that if you look like you are, uh, you have a headache and you're massaging your, your eyes, like, Somebody might do if they have a headache. What I'm doing is I have my thumb and my forefinger on my uh, tear ducts. If you actually just do this gesture, you cannot cry. It it immediately um, makes you physiologically somehow it makes your your tear ducts stop it. <laughs> so no way. Oh yeah. Now it's harder now that I wear glasses. It doesn't look as smooth. But what I would be able to do back then is just sort of <clears throat> act like I had a little bit of a headache, take a pause, rub my tear ducts, and be composed all in that 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 moment. So not letting your emotion, your adrenaline and that initial reaction, not letting that um, take you over, because to me, that's what would. And I would feel very weak in those moments and I would want to just retreat and hide someplace. Uh, So as I gained the ability to not cry, (laughs) to have a choice about that, I also gained the ability to pull my thoughts together and to be able to respond. And when I can't respond to this day, 
because I'm in control. For me, part of being tough is if somebody says something that I'm not ready to, to talk about or I feel like it's going to be too emotional, rather than the outpouring of emotion, I will say, you know, I'd like to think about that before we talk about it. Uh, my initial reaction is probably not my true reaction. Let me, I'm going to get back to you tomorrow. I'm in charge. I can, I can say that, right? So, yeah. And that's a respectable answer. That's a res respectable response. I like that. I like that a lot. So in your marriage of 36 years, you said? Going on. Mm -hmm. Going on 36 years, raising of three children who are productive members of society, who are happy, healthy, and I think you use the word kind as well? Well, they are kind. <laughs> yes, they all, they all are, you know, especially deep down, they're, they're good humans. Yes. So raising good humans that are contributing members of society is a huge feat. Staying married for 35 years, sticking it out to the same person is a huge feat. Being a woman in corporate America who's leading a successful company that's impacting others, that's another huge feat. In my world, that's unstoppable. Where do you get it from? What makes you unstoppable? I never envisioned having any other choice. I want to do what I want to do. And people have told me all my life, you can't. I've, I've heard you can't more times. I wasn't allowed to play the flute in fifth grade band. I, I wasn't going to be able to pass the typing class. I, I'm missing a finger. So people would tell me these you can'ts. And I, it never occurred to me that they would be right because I think I can. And so I do. And I, I think that comes from my parents. They were both in the Marines, they were both Marine Corps drill sergeants, right? So you just, you just did stuff. <laughs> yes. And, um, and I really haven't had things in my life where I have believed I can't. I believe I can. So I do. If it's worth it to me, why wouldn't I? I'm going to get you a t-shirt that says, underestimate me. That'll be fun. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I do like that. So I know that our listeners are going to want to connect with you, stay in touch with you. And if you were to ever give out a coaching prompt of the day via email, they would want to subscribe to your newsletter. How can they stay in touch with you? How can they reach you? Yeah, I, I like it when people do that. So look on my website, People First PS. The PS stands for Productivity Solutions. It has all my contact information. I'm not going to make this hard for you. Call me, email me, connect with me on LinkedIn. And let's talk. I like relationships. I am not afraid of, of too many of them. It hasn't happened yet. And I don't ever mind the follow-up conversations after uh, something like this podcast. So it's up to you because I don't know who you are, but I will reciprocate and, and we'll, have a, we'll have a nice chat. Yes, I can, I can second that. You will not waste your time connecting with Deb. She's a worth, wealth of information, as you can tell. She's kind and gives back. And that's why you're here is because I knew that our listeners would gain knowledge, gain inspiration, and some days when you need that hope, you've given it to them. So thank you for that. Thank you, Cynthia. I have really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Everyone, this is Cynthia Barnes with another episode of Unstoppable with Cynthia Barnes. Thank you, Deb, for everything. Mm -hmm.